The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. We continue this morning in our series, Walking Through the Book of Acts. And let me just give you a, a quick review in case you're jumping in. In Acts 1, after his resurrection from the dead, Jesus appeared to his disciples and he taught them over the course of several days and, and told them to wait for what the Father had promised, the Holy Spirit, and that they would be witnesses all over the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then before their eyes, he was lifted up in a cloud into the heavens where he now sits at the right hand of God the Father. That's chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, the day of Pentecost arrives and God's promise to pour out his Holy Spirit is fulfilled by, by Jesus as he, as he pours out the Holy Spirit on, on the disciples and all of them are filled with the Holy Spirit, men and women, young and old. And, and there's this loud sound of a wind and a strange uh, flame-like, fire-like presence over their heads. And, and uh, what's stunning, what Luke seems to make most of, is that the disciples were enabled to speak the languages of the, the gathered people, the crowds in Jerusalem in order that when they would speak the gospel, the, the crowds would hear the gospel in their own native dialects. So that's, that's where we are. And then, and then right at that moment, uh, there's this pivotal verse right before Peter gets up to explain things where some in the crowd say, oh, they're just a bunch of drunk people. And, uh, and then uh, others in the crowd ask the most important question, what does this mean? And then in Acts 2.14, Peter speaks. And, you know, just think about Peter. We, we know a lot about Peter from the Gospels. You know, Peter. Peter who, who often is the first to jump in. Or Peter who's often the first to speak. He seems impulsive sometimes. And, and regrettably, Peter who the night Jesus was betrayed and arrested, the night before Jesus was crucified, Peter who denied that he even knew Jesus three times. This Peter, who after Jesus rose from the dead, one of the first things Jesus did is he went to Peter. And he restored Peter. And gave him the task of tending his people, shepherding his church. And, uh, and so it's that Peter that, that stands up with all the confidence of restoration from Christ. And he speaks. I imagine him standing up. The crowd gets quiet. And he begins this explanation of, you know, what does this mean, was the question. He begins this explanation with, with, uh, three, with, with references to three Old Testament quotes. And uh, again, we're still in review. Two weeks ago, Pastor Jason reflected on Peter's first quotation from Joel chapter 2. Last week, Ming Jin Tong reflected on Peter's second quotation from Psalm 16. And now this morning, I will take Peter's third quotation from the Old Testament from uh, Psalm 110. And now I want to read what Peter says in our text, Acts chapter 2, verses 33 through 35. 
Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, this is the quote now from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So my main point before I pray is this. The outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost is evidence that God has exalted Jesus Christ as Lord and King. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word here. I pray that we would not be like those in the crowd who miss what's going on. Uh, They're just a bunch of drunks. No, Father, help us to see. Help us to know Jesus as he's portrayed here. Help us to believe in Christ and rest in him for all your promises and our all our good, even the forgiveness of our sins and for all your promises fulfilled through him for us, for us. So I pray that the outcome of this morning would be that you'd strengthen our faith to believe in this gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name I pray, amen. I don't know, I don't very often have really nice outlines. I have not a nice outline to tell you about. <laughs> it's just the way it came together. Here's my not nice outline, just so you can follow along. Uh, four, four, four chunks, four units. Uh, first, I want to think about the audience that Peter's talking to. Because it, it sheds light on why is Peter so bent on going to the Old Testament to explain what's going on. Uh, second, we'll look at the text in Acts chapter 2, and then we'll double-click on, on Psalm 110, and we'll go to Psalm 110, and we'll make some observations from the first half of the, the text there. And then I just want to conclude with some, with a pastoral call to hope in Christ, our King and Lord. So, four point, four, four chunks. Uh, audience, the text, Psalm 110, and then the conclusion with a pastoral call to hope in Christ. So about the audience, it, it's helpful to remember that Peter is speaking to people in the crowd who are Jews. They're, they're Jewish. They're, they're in the city of Jerusalem for the Jewish feast of, of, uh, of Pentecost. And some of them are ethnic Jews and, and some of them are, are Gentiles who've converted to Judaism, but they're Jews. And so one of the things that we can infer is that these Jewish people that make up the crowd, of whom 3,000 will believe, they knew the scriptures. They respected the scriptures. They knew the history of Israel. They, they knew of King David, the great king, uh, a man after God's own heart. And they knew, likely, some of the prophecies of the Old Testament that, that there was coming a day when God would make a new covenant with his people and it would be marked by the Holy Spirit and that there's a day coming when 
when, when one would come, a descendant of David, a, a branch from David's tree would come and sit on David's throne, and this future king would have divine qualities, and, and he, would, he would rule forever. He would, he would not only rule forever, but his peace that he would bring would last forever. And uh, he, would, he, would, he would rule in such a way that, that God's justice would be known and felt and experienced. People would live in justice, and people would live in righteousness. And, and this is the... This, this whole collection of promises in the Old Testament are about, we could, we could call it the Messiah, that would be the Hebrew word, about the Christ, this descendant of David who was promised to come, and yet at the time of Christ, people did not know whether he had come or not. And all that's to say that, is that the, the, the crowd likely knew their Old Testament. They knew the messianic promises. They knew the promise of the, the new covenant. And, and so, I just think of them as, as a people who, who lived with a longing. I mean, do you know what I'm talking about? Some sense that you live in a world where things aren't right. And, and you look into the Bible and and you see the promises of God and you have a longing, Lord, do that. They were people living under Roman rule and Roman occupation. And they longed for the day when the Messiah, their Messiah, would come by the power of God and be their king and reign forever. They were people who had experienced injustice and wrongdoing at the hands of ungodly rulers and wicked authorities and evil people. And they longed for a king over all kings who, as promised, would rule with God's righteousness and justice and right the wrongs and punish the evildoers. There were people experiencing persecution as Jews. And soon as we know from the book of Acts, that persecution will break out and flame up against Christians. They long for Messiah to come and bring shalom, a lasting peace and well-being the way things ought to be. There were people, as we are, familiar with suffering in its various forms. And they longed for the day when Messiah would come <coughs> and bring good news to the poor and bandage up the broken hearted. Interesting, isn't it? It's not merely bandage up the broken. It'd be true too. Bandage up the broken hearted. Proclaim liberty to the captives and comfort to those who mourn. Lord, bring on the day. And they were a people who longed for the promised day of the Lord's grace and favor. If they read their Old Testament, the time when God would gather his people and cleanse them from all their sins, cleanse them from all their idols and all their unrighteousness and 
And I hope they long for the day when God would take out their heart of stone, unbelieving, rebellious toward God, and put in a heart of flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit to cause them to love God and walk in his ways. It's just a longing, I imagine, in these people. Let me read Ezekiel 37, 23, one of the promises. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. I tell you all that to tell you this, that when when Peter grounds his explanation of what does all this mean at Pentecost in three Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah and the New Covenant, He's hanging the present events on the, th- that are happening before their eyes on the, the history of God's people, on, on the, the history of God and his kingdom and what he's doing. He's, trying, he's hanging these current events on the history that God is unfolding and has promised to unfold. And so I, I believe they, he has their attention. Why? Because they believe the Old Testament And deep within, they feel a longing, a longing for God to make things right. I think he's got them. (laughs) Evidence would be 3,000 belief. (laughs) By the power of the Holy Spirit and the word of God, these promises, 3,000 believe after one sermon. They are leaning in. So now, second part. Let's look at the text. Beginning in verse 33, where Peter grounds this meaning of Pentecost in in his third reference to the Old Testament. He begins, verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, that is Christ, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. In other words, reading the sentence from the last clause to the first, Peter's saying, look, you yourselves have seen and heard these evidences of the outpouring of the Spirit, the torrential wind and the images of fire and the supernatural ability to speak unknown languages. This was Jesus' doing. The ascended Christ did this. At this point, he's saying that Christ is not only risen from the grave, he's not only returned to God the Father, but he has ascended to God's right hand and with all authority in heaven and on earth, he has answered the Father's promise to pour out the Holy Spirit. And you've seen it. He's going from what they see with their eyes to believing what they cannot see with the eyes of faith. Christ is ascended to God the Father and reigns. That's his point. Then in verse 34, he introduces Psalm 110 this way. Uh, Verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and he quotes Psalm 110 verse 1, but rather than read it here in Acts, let's go to Psalm 110. If you would turn to Psalm 110 and uh, 
I want to spend a little time here. This is my third section where we double-click on Psalm 110. Psalm 10, Psalm 110 was written by King David. It is, some of you probably know this, it is the psalm most referenced by the New Testament writers. It's referenced in Matthew, in Mark, in Acts, as we've seen, in Romans, in 1 Corinthians, in Hebrews, and in Revelation. No other psalm, no other passage of the Old Testament gets the attention the Psalm 110 does in the New Testament. It begins, verse 1. This is, the, this is the verse quoted by Peter. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So what's going on here? David has a prophetic vision. He is overhearing the Lord, Yahweh, God, speaking to one whom David calls my Lord. And right there, questions start popping. <laughs> how does my Lord, the, the Christ, the, how does the Messiah relate to King David? He will sit on David's throne, we know that, and he will be a descendant, we know that. He's called the branch in Jeremiah 33, 15. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Given those kinds of questions, Jesus quotes Psalm 110, trying to straighten out the relationship between King David and the promised Messiah. I'll read it. Matthew 22, verse verse 42. The, The Pharisees are pressing in on Jesus. You know the Pharisees. They're totally opposed to Jesus, hostile to him. So Jesus asks them a question. He says, this is Matthew 22, 42. What do you think about the Christ? You know, these are religious leaders. They, they study the Old Testament. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. Jesus said to them, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I, make, until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus goes on, well, if David then calls him Lord, how is he David's son? And at that, no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. (laughs) What's Jesus doing Jesus is making clear the relationship between King David and the Messiah. King David is not the Messiah. He was a type. Do you know what a type is? He was a type. There are types in the Old Testament that serve as pointers to a fuller reality yet to come as God unfolds salvation history. A simple illustration, the uh, sacrificial lamb 
spotless, pure, slain for the sins of the people, pointer to the Lamb of God who would come and take away the sins of the world, the fuller revelation of God's purposes in salvation history. Same with King David. King David is a type pointing to Messiah, the Christ yet to come. King David died and was buried. Christ died and rose from the dead. King David did not ascend into heaven. Christ ascended to heaven on clouds of glory. King David never sat at the right hand of God the Father. Christ ascended to sit at the right hand of God the Father. And when when David sees the Messiah, the Christ, in this vision, he is not looking at his grandchild. Rather, he bends bends the knee and calls Christ my Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, the Messiah did come from David's lineage through his mother. The branch came through Mary. So, King David is really not Jesus' father. God is. God is. Jesus just makes it clear. The Messiah is ruler over the greatest king of Israel. David worships the Christ, the Son of God. Ruler of all. See why they didn't ask him any more questions. Before we leave Psalm 110... I want to observe a few more things about Christ's reign in the first half of the psalm. Verse 2 says that he rules in the midst of his enemies. Very interesting. He rules in the midst of his enemies, and, and yet Psalm 1 makes clear that he will reign until he makes his enemies his footstool. I'll pick up on that a little later. Verse 3 speaks of his people. A beautiful picture of the people of Christ. These people will offer themselves to him in free and in glad submission to his reign. They're like a nation of of priests, holy, clothed in righteousness. Verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. This is a beautiful, righteous, good people that belong to Christ. Verse 5 adds this of his triumph over the rulers of the earth. The Lord is at your right hand. He will, he will sh- shatter kings on the day of his wrath. There, the vision of Christ's triumph, even over kings, if over kings, over all, over all who oppose him. So there's the vision of Christ's reign in Psalm 110. God seats him at his right hand. 
on the throne of God, though his enemies may abound. He, he rules in the midst of his enemies, and the day is coming when, by the power of God, he will make his enemies his footstool, and uh, his people who live under his reign and submit and worship him, they're glad people, holy and just, thriving and, and flourishing under his rule, and there's a day coming when he will, he will come and, and judge all the evildoers, even kings and old peoples from the throne of God. The title of this sermon is The Meaning of Pentecost, part three. So what's the main point of this third section in Peter's sermon? I could say it this way. The pouring out of the Spirit is evidence that God has exalted Jesus as Lord and Christ, as King and Messiah, according to the Scriptures. That's Peter's point. The pouring out of the Spirit is evidence that God has exalted Christ, or excuse me, exalted Jesus as Lord and Christ, King and Messiah, according to the Scriptures. And then now next week, Rene Gonzalez is going to continue walking through the sermon. And I love the next verse. I have to read it without preaching his sermon. I just have to read 236. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's kind of the crescendo. So we're going there next week. Now let me just ponder pastorally ponder, devotionally ponder uh, our section, this third point in Peter's sermon about the exaltation of Christ in his reign. It's that phrase in Psalm 110 verse 2 that sticks in my mind right here. He will reign in the midst of his enemies. Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's reigning. He will reign in the midst of his enemies. And the day's coming when his enemies will be totally defeated and he'll triumph over them, but it's not yet. So that little phrase is what gripped me for this closing. He will reign in the midst of his enemies. Have you ever heard the theological phrase, the already and the not yet, like, that we live in the already of God's promises to us in Christ, and we wait for the, the not yet? I mean, in the already, Christ has come and lived and died for our sins. He's ascended to God the Father. We trust him, and, and we receive the, the gift of the Holy Spirit and, and all his promises, past, present, and future are ours. And yet we live with this longing for the day when the enemies will be finally defeated and Christ finally triumphs and his kingdom is consummated. And I think about the, I mean, this isn't a good parallel of the enemies under his feet, but for some reason I think about cigarette butts. <laughs> He will reign until his enemies are a cigarette butt. 
put out under his foot. It's not a good image. <laughs> so, I tell you what I want to do to close. You know, if you, if you think of all your longings and all your enemies, I believe they'll all fall into these three categories. Maybe all of them into all three. Who are these enemies? Number one, Satan is an enemy. Satan is an enemy. The Bible says, 1 Peter 5, your adversary, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan is a liar. He is a thief. He's the accuser of the brethren. Satan is the enemy of God, and Satan is the enemy of God's people. Satan is the enemy of Christ, and Satan has a, an evil spiritual army evil spiritual beings that do his bidding, and he also has people who do his bidding because of sin. And Satan seeks to, to undermine the worship of Christ and work against his reign and oppose his people. And of this, you know, Ephesians 6 says... For we, we do not wrestle against f flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You think your life is hard because of something that happened at work? Paul makes it worse. Well, something happens at work that's wrong or bad or evil happens Yes, it's wrong and bad and evil, but it happens under the cosmic powers over this present darkness. 1 John 5, 19. There's an image here communicated by one word here. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And I looked up that word. It's a word that you'd, you'd use for like a baby that lies in its mother's arm. The world lies in the power of the evil one. Satan is the prince of this world. Satan's an enemy. But take heart. Christ reigns over Satan. He's king over Satan, the prince of this world. Christ defeated Satan on the cross. He, Christ will crush the serpent's head and there's a day coming when Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire and uh, he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. According to Revelation 20, verse 10, 11, 12. So take heart. You have an enemy. Christ has an enemy. Satan. But Christ reigns over Satan and will utterly totally triumph over him once and for all. Number two, 
Sin is an enemy. Sin is why human beings are at war with God. And we, 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 have, we, we are sinners because we're of Adam and sin. We believe in total depravity, that sin has infected our, our, our nature. We're sinful in act and attitude and, and state. Even our nature is sinful, not just what we do, not just what we think, but who we are. Sin opposes God fails to give him the glory do his name, the love and the trust that he deserves. Sin is a capital offense before God. Not only does sin merit our eternal punishment, sin separates us from one another and all the effects of sin that it has horizontally. You know, do you realize that sin is an enemy that can do something even Satan can't do? Send you to hell. It's, it, what's interesting is, is the longer you live as a Christian and, and you have growth and grace and holiness, but at the same time, one of the interesting things happens which really feeds your humility in your growth of gra- in grace, is you become more, more aware of the layers of sin and sinfulness within your own heart. And there ought not be any triumphal Christians. Now, it's coming, but not yet. Paul writes of the helplessness to fix ourselves of our own sins. He says, this is Romans 7, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind that wants to do God's will, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Sin is an enemy. But Christ reigns over sin. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord who gives us the victory. So take heart. Christ reigns. He has canceled the penalty of sin for us by his death on the cross. He's broken its power in us by the power of his spirit and his superior promises. And the day is coming when sin will be no more. And we will see him face to face and we will be transformed. (sighs) New bodies, new beings to worship him without the entanglement of sin, all to his glory and honor. One more enemy, death. Death is an enemy. Death is the paycheck human beings get for being sinners. We sin, here's what you get. Death. Eternal death, death. Separation from God, eternal punishment forever. And death, physical death, while we await the last day of judgment. 
Death is an enemy. Christ reigns over death. First Corinthians 15, 25. For he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Verse 56, still in 1 Corinthians 15. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Death is an enemy, but Christ reigns over death. Take heart. Take heart. The day is coming where he will do away with it, and we will be ushered into eternal life. He's canceled all our sins. He's granted us eternal life in Christ. And uh, the bodies are coming. The new sinless bodies are coming that will live forever in the new heavens, in the new earth. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. No more. No more dying. No more. No more grief. No more pain. No more tears as we live forever in his presence where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore because Christ reigns over death. He triumphs. <laughs> so, hope in Christ, your risen, reigning King, Messiah, Christ. And trust him with all the longings that you have in your heart to be fulfilled because the day is coming when the not yet will be already when he comes to consummate his kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks so much for your word. And oh, we are a people of longings. And so I pray for a work of faith by the power of your word, by the reality of Christ's reign, I pray that you put all our longings into the basket of our trust in you and trust you with all the things that are broken in our world and about us. Put all those things in the basket of hope in you and trust you as you work out your sovereign reign in our lives, using even the troubles of our lives for your good and our, our uh, benefit, that we would glorify you even in the struggles. I pray that you give us a faith that you're at work even in those things as we await the day when you make all things new. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Five five four one five. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.